Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and those who don't identify as either, you are listening to Ratchet and Respectable. I so wish y'all could see me right now. I look crazy. Anyone who's ever questioned my dedication to this podcast, I just think that y'all do not understand what I go through sometimes to get an episode done and to get it out. I am sitting at this hotel. I changed hotels this morning. The tourism board put me up at a very lovely hotel. It just wasn't my taste. Luckily, there was another one that was, so I switched. That's not the point. The point is, I am sitting at this desk at this very lovely hotel with very high ceilings. Very high ceilings, very big spaces affect the quality of sound of my podcast. I am sitting at this desk. <laughs> this is so stupid with a bathrobe over my head so that the sound isn't absolutely terrible. It's still not the best, but it's the best I can do under the circumstances. I literally have a bathrobe over my head. Never questioned my dedication to this. Oh my God, that's not the point. Other than that, <laughs> I'm absolutely living my best life. I'm still in Rwanda. Last time we spoke, I think I was prepping for the Kendrick Lamar concert. I think it was that night. Absolutely epic. Like one of the best concerts I've ever seen and not like best on the continent of Africa but, or like best rap concert, but like one of the best concerts, period. His stage presence, the overall design of everything, the lighting team, the dancers, like it was half old school hip hop show where it's just like a rapper who could just spit. But also like it gave us Broadway because it was very theatrical also gave us a bit of Alvin Ailey. Not Revelations, there was no yellow, but they did have black girl, Rwandan black girls, but they did have black ballet dancers. It was a lot. It was so many wonderful things. And Kendrick is just electric. And the audience loved him, loved him. Rwanda turned up for Kendrick. It was, ugh, it was so amazing. Two things. Paused the show at one point to address the audience. And I think he was a little emotional. He was trying to hold himself together. And he said... When his first album, the one that I fell in love with him, but he said his first album, he was just writing to document the experiences of the people around him. And he said never in his wildest dreams, and I'm paraphrasing, but he never thought when he was writing that first album that he would be on stage in Africa, Rwanda, performing for, quote and unquote, his people. He was very moved as excited I think as Rwanda was to have like you know this big American rapper he was just as excited and honored to be present 
But great, great, great show. I'm so glad I had this opportunity to attend it. It's helping with my FOMO because I'm scrolling my Instagram feed and like half my friends are at Art Basel in Miami, which I was like, I would have been there or maybe not because the other half of my friends are at the Color Purple premiere in LA. And I was like, wait, but I've been there. I would have been at one of them. <sighs> Y'all pictures look real, real cute. Kendrick Lamar is the only thing that's keeping my FOMO from raging. I feel so kind of way about not being able to see the color purple or Renaissance. We'll talk about that in a second. Kigali is amazing. We went to a restaurant the other day, Repub, I think it's called, for local cuisine. I don't know the name of nothing. I just know I ate real, real, real good. The food here is wonderful. I ate something that was like banana-based. It was like banana curry something. And then there was something else that was like a fish, for lack of a better word, curry. And then there was fried fish. Somebody told me later that it was anchovies. And I was like, was it? In general, I don't like anchovies, but I like whatever I ate here. Like, perfect. I'm near a landlocked country. I'm like, but how is your fish so good? I'm so confused. But it is. We ate real, real good the whole trip. Um, but today was my first free day. I've stayed over a couple extra days. I went to this really cute restaurant, a wine bar. And then I went to a bunch of art galleries. And I was just going to look. I swear I was just going to look. But then like I saw a piece. And I was like, it's beautiful. And then I asked how much it was. And it was more than I was willing to spend. And then I walked out the room and I was like, I have the money for it. Go get it because I'll regret it later. I felt like it was something that if I didn't get, I'd think about it constantly. So I went back and bargained. I did my best. <laughs> I feel like I got it for a good price. And I'm absolutely in love with it. Like I sent it to one of my friends and she was like, oh, my God. Remember I said I stopped buying bags and I started buying art. And I was like, oh, it's cheaper than cocaine. Not really. Not really. Bags, yes. Art, art is expensive. You can't save money and have an art habit. But I feel like it's good investment. I said to my dad, and I was like, I'm buying all this art. And I was like, I do not have a place to live. I do not own a home. And I thought he was going to say something about it. I remember I wanted to get this X5. Did I tell you all this story about the X5? I know I recorded it. I think I might have edited it out. The short version, I wanted to buy this X5. It was years ago. This is like 10 years ago. And my dad was like, you going to buy a luxury car and pull it up to an apartment? And I was like, I don't understand. Are you making a correlation that's supposed to make sense to me? And he was like, okay, you going to buy a luxury vehicle and park it at the curb in New York? It's going to get banged up. And I was like, oh. And he was like, yeah, like you buy a house and you get a driveway or a garage to put your luxury vehicle in. You don't park a luxury vehicle at the curb. And I was like, fine, you have a point. So I thought when I told him, you know, that I've been buying all this art, I had this other piece commissioned in Ghana. Don't, don't ask. Don't ask. I told y'all cocaine might be cheaper. But I told my dad about that one, too. And I really thought he was going to be like, Demetri, like, what are you doing? Buy a house. You're going to have all these investment pieces, but you don't have a house to live in. But I was like, yeah, I bought this. And then I bought that. And my dad was like, yeah, you know. And I was like, that's it. I was like, I don't even have a house. And he was like, you'll buy a house when you want a house. He was like, you don't even know what continent you want to live on, much less the country. It don't make no sense to buy a house. Just buy the art. And I was like, really? The good part is I'm buying the art and I'm envisioning the kind of house that I would like to hang the art in. So there is a vision. There's just, you know, no house. <sighs> I don't want to grow up. What are we having good black news this week? Not a lot. Not a lot. I hope never again do we have a week where it's dull stuff. Because ever since then, I feel like it's been nonstop crazy. We do need to offer congratulations to Usher. He finished his residency in Vegas. He did exactly 100 shows. 
I saw a clip from his final show. He cried. He cried. I was so happy for him. It was tears of joy and probably tears of relief and probably tears of I, there's this video circulating maybe from like 20 years ago. Usher's super young in the video, but he's being interviewed. And the person says something about don't end up in Vegas doing a residency because the idea was like, that's where, you know, when your career is dead and you just need to do it for the money or you're trying to revive your career or something like that. Like he said, we well, was like, well, you'll never do Vegas. And Usher was like, actually, no, like I would like to do a residency and not because like my career is dead, but because like I put on a great show and people want to come see it. So I think maybe that has something to do with his tears too. You manifested something 20 years prior and now you've seen it come to fruition and now it's over. I'm sure there's so many emotions mixed up in there. He held it together. I mean, after he fell apart, he pulled himself back together. Without You closes out his show. And then he hit his high notes. I try to hit some Usher notes. I can't hit his notes on Without You. And then exited the stage. Oh, Usher. I just love me some Usher. I can't wait to the Super Bowl. I still do not have a Super Bowl connect. I don't know how this is going to work. But I'm like, I need to go to the Super Bowl. It's not a want. It's a need. I know, first world problems. And still, problems nonetheless. This is, this is news. Taylor Swift was named Time Person of the Year, which good for her. Like, and genuinely good. Not like Vesta congratulations good, but like genuine congratulations. I am happy for her. What I'm about to say next is not a problem that I have with Taylor Swift. It's a problem that I have with time. Taylor Swift did this massive tour as did Beyonce. They both broke records. There were nine or 10 people nominated for Time's 2023 Person of the Year. Nine candidates. I'm on Time's page right now. The nine included the Hollywood Strikers, which fair, the Chinese president, Taylor Swift, okay, Sam Altman. He's the CEO of OpenAI. They're the company that created ChatGPT. Trump prosecutors, they note that felony counts have been brought forward by prosecutors in Florida, Georgia, New York, and Washington, D.C. for election interference, illegally holding on to classified documents, and falsifying business records. Fair. Barbie, fair. The movie earned $1.4 billion and, as Time notes, caused an explosion of pink fashion, accessories, and other merchandise in stores across the world. Okay. Vladimir Putin, the mofo invaded Ukraine. I would say that he's not a famous person time of the year. This is a nomination for being infamous, but I'm fine with that. King Charles III, the man literally is the king of England. I would have been fine with that too. Jerome Powell, he's the chairman of the Federal Reserve. He's kept the country, America, from going into a recession. Fine. I don't understand how Beyonce didn't get on this list. Not even a nomination. Depending on which metric that you're using, she and Taylor are pretty neck and neck when it comes to money, when it comes to influence. I think it's notable that Time talked about the Barbie movie and they were like, everyone started wearing pink worldwide. Okay. With Beyonce, everybody started wearing silver worldwide. I just saw some article the other day that was talking about like all the silver that's in thrift stores now because all the people that bought silver for Beyonce have no other place to wear it. And I was like, people, why are you getting rid of your silver before New Year's Eve? You don't need it for the ball drop? No, keep your silver. If you chose to pick an entertainer as being the most influential above all these other people, I just don't understand one, how you go with Taylor Swift and two, how Beyonce wasn't even in the conversation.
It's like, say you're racist without saying you're racist because I don't understand what else it could be. This is one of those times I wish we had the old Kanye. <laughs> Even though he's probably the one that launched this media-driven feud of Beyonce versus Taylor Swift. And I say media-driven because they seem to like each other. Like Taylor goes to Beyonce stuff, Beyonce goes to Taylor stuff. They seem fine. But they're often pitted against each other. And I feel like it's solely because Taylor Swift won that damn VMA. Was it for Song of the Year? Best Female Video. That's what it was. 2009, Kanye ran on stage, said, yo, Taylor, I'm really happy for you. I'm going to let you finish. But Beyonce had one of the best videos of all time. Where is Kanye when you need him? He wasn't all bad. The Nazi stuff towards the end was pretty bad. But there were also some good moments. He had a point on some things. He didn't handle Beyonce's loss well at that time. But really, I wish he was on his microphone right now, figurative or literal, to take up for Beyonce in this moment. Because I don't like it. I don't like it at all. And not so good black news. Jeezy and Jeannie is getting messy. Jeannie has accused Jeezy of cheating on her. I'm reading this on Vibe. Jeezy and Jeannie had a prenup, but according to documents obtained by TMZ, Jeannie's attorney is countering Jeezy's, it says Jeezy's prenuptial request. I guess he's asking to stick to the prenup. And Jeannie is saying that the prenup is void because in their prenup, paragraph eight, there's a clause regarding infidelity which says that in the event that either party engages in sexual relations, an emotional relationship, or is emotionally or sexually suggestive in communication with a third party via all forms of electronic communications, including, but not limited to, texting, sexting, FaceTime, social media, and or direct messages, shall result in a significant financial penalty upon the adulterous party. So if she's saying that the prenup is void and referring to paragraph eight, essentially she's saying Jeezy cheated on me. Jeezy says that didn't happen. In a statement made to Us Weekly, <laughs> the Atlanta rapper spokesperson denied all allegations of infidelity. I'm reading this on wild106.3.iheart.com. It says uh, the accusation surfaced after Jeezy's ex and her lawyers added more grounds for divorce. His spokesperson said, quote, any claim of infidelity on Mr. Jenkins behalf are 100 percent false. And we have no further statements at this time. Oh, dear. You know, Jeezy did that sit down with Nia Long and Jeannie did an interview recently with J-Hud. I think she also did a conversation with Sherry as well. But when she talked to J-Hud, I'm back on vibe.com. It says Jeannie has opened up about her ongoing divorce from rapper Jeezy, mentioning that she found out about the filing with the rest of the world. Are you telling me that, that he didn't tell you that he was, that he was divorcing you? What? She says, uh, I think I'm doing better now. She said about the divorce. And she said, at the time when I found out at the same time as the rest of the world that my marriage was ending in divorce, I was gutted. Ma'am, run that back. Run that back. He didn't tell you he was divorcing you? I know things aren't good, but like, you're telling us that he didn't say nothing? He just like went and filed? 
Didn't Portia's husband do something like that? The first husband, not Simon, the football player husband. Wasn't that Portia's story that she was like in the next room and her phone lit up and people were like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. And she was like, about what? And they were like, you're divorced. And she was like, who divorced? Who getting divorced? Because her husband had filed on her and she was like, literally they were in the same house and he didn't say shit. Please don't tell me that's what Jeezy did. Please don't tell me. I've seen people talk about this situation and they're like, it doesn't make sense that she's saying she didn't know they were getting a divorce because she's also accusing him of cheating. So clearly, like, there were problems. How didn't she know? And I was like, that'll make no sense to y'all. I'm just going by her version of events. Like, the logic is still sound to me. I'm not saying that to defend her. I'm just saying, like, the idea that, like, she found out he cheated and then it's surprised they're getting divorced, like, doesn't, that still tracks for me. I don't know what happened between them. I don't know if he cheated or he didn't cheat. Nothing would surprise me. I'm just saying. Obviously, whatever was going on with them wasn't working. They have a child. Is a little girl even two now? Like, they got to deal with each other for the rest of their lives in some capacity or another. I hope they can find some peace, some way, somehow. And I hope they can wrap up this divorce sooner than later because the messy details playing out every day on the blogs, it doesn't help matters for sure. What else do we have on our list? There's other small stuff that I don't care about. TJ Holmes and the blonde. Apparently, they're ex-spouses. TJ's wife and Amy's husband are now dating each other. And allegedly, TJ and Amy are upset about it because they just launched this new podcast. But conversation about their exes dating each other is dominating the news instead of people talking about their podcast. Like, I just... I, you want people to feel sorry for you? I don't, I don't, I don't understand. Do you want people to think that your exes are trifling? Because I don't. Y'all didn't give a fuck, now they don't give a fuck. Like... Those two people out of anybody in the damn world, they owe you the least amount of loyalty after the way that TJ and the blonde carried on. If they want to date each other, if they want to even just put out a story about dating each other to steal the thunder from TJ and Amy's podcast, what you want me to do? Be mad at them? What you want me to do? Care? Good for them. Are they happy? I hope they are because they deserve some joy. That was a lot. Now we need to talk about some bullshit. Russell Simmons has been accused of some form of sexual assault. I think the interview I watched the other day, I think they said it was 18 women. Russell Simmons ran off to Bali. There was like, yeah, his like yoga, vegan, Zen thing, whatever. Bali also doesn't have an extradition agreement with the United States. And so it's always been assumed that Russell is over there so that he can't be charged and arrested and jailed in America for all of these allegations against him. I also think it's worth noting, to my knowledge, it's not like there's an outstanding warrant for his arrest or pending charges for him or anything like that. And he does come back and forth. He, he hangs around with Kevin Lyles. Kevin Lyles posts pictures of them together whenever Russell's in the States. So he does come back and forth. So maybe all the conversation about why he's in Bali is just a really popular conspiracy theory. Russell has always denied any kind of accusations against him when it's come to these 18 women accusing him of sexual assault or this documentary. It wasn't called Surviving Russell, but that's essentially what it was. For whatever reason, I, I can't figure out for like the love of God. He decided to do this interview where he addressed the sexual assault allegations and his defense is, and I'm not making this shit up. 
His defense in this interview was like, hey, I was a hoe and I had more foursomes than most people have ever had sex partners. He alluded to having sex with thousands of women. He says he was young, he was stupid, his ego was in control, he had a lot of insecurities. It definitely wasn't the right thing to do, but he was like, that's what I thought I was supposed to be doing, and so I did. He said he was very crude and vulgar with the women. He's like, maybe he didn't treat them like he should have, but that doesn't mean he assaulted them. And then he goes on to say, and he says this line multiple times throughout the interview. He talks about women reimagining scenarios. Or, you know, he had sex with like all these women, all these thousands of women, but it's only this like 18 that have come forward. And he's implying that like percentage wise, it's really a small number. When you think about all the people that he had sex with, somebody may want attention. Somebody may want money. Someone may feel that they weren't treated good during our during the sexual encounter. And so now they want some sort of he didn't actually say revenge, but that's kind of what he implied. And I was like, this is your defense. This is your defense that 18 women who didn't know each other have reimagined, quote unquote, his word, reimagined the same scenario with you, all 18 of them. He was like, you know, maybe people misremember or, you know, it's been so long that people remember things in different ways. And I was like, this is your defense. I was a hoe and I was crude, but I wasn't a rapist. Huh? He could have kept that shit. And he does the interview from Bali. You can hear the, um, I don't know, the sounds of the jungle, if you will. Like you can hear like insects making noise. And then he's sitting there in some sort of like, <laughs> I would call it crisscross applesauce, but it's not actually that. It's like some sort of like yoga pose. And I was like, do you have a lawyer? Do you have a publicist? I find myself asking this question so often lately. Did your lawyer or your publicist approve this interview can't possibly because nobody was even talking about russell everybody's been talking about diddy i don't understand why at this juncture you would insert yourself into the conversation everybody's focused on diddy and now you do this interview because you want people to be focused on you and your alleged sexual assaults huh nobody was thinking about you bruh actually diddy had taken attention away from you why don't you just let him keep it i mean i'm glad you reminded us of like what a dick you are but still, like, where is your sense of self-preservation? I just, I'm very confused. And then he's going on to say that he's, that he's taken and passed. He says that the head of, I don't know, whoever runs lie detector tests administered a bunch of them. Basically, he's saying, like, I'm innocent because of these lie detector tests. Sir, I hear you. I do. But lie detector tests are not admissible in a court of law, which, again, I only know from watching all my court shows. I actually did look it up to make sure it was accurate, though. Literally, lie detector tests are not admissible in courts of law because they're not considered reliable. He ends the interview, at least the part that I saw. He was like, you know, it's important to believe women. He was like, we absolutely must believe women, but we can't have this society where we like people could just make accusations and then people's lives and livelihood are destroyed by these accusations of women. So I was like, do you believe women or not? Is it like believe women except the women all 18 of them that are accusing me of sexual assault. Again, I ask, where is your publicist? Where is your publicist, sir? I thought that was going to be the end of our conversation this week. 
I saw a post from Diddy who's been quiet ever since the Cassie lawsuit came out, not even a month ago. Let me pull this up because I want to read it to you. So Diddy posted this on his Instagram yesterday. It reads, enough is enough in bold. He says, for the last couple of weeks, I have sat silently and watched people try to assassinate my character, destroy my reputation and my legacy. Sickening allegations have been made against me by individuals looking for a quick payday. Let me be absolutely clear. I did not do any of the awful things being alleged. I will fight for my name, my family, and for the truth. He signs off, Sean Diddy Combs. No more love, Sean Diddy Combs. Comments are turned off on the page. Okay. I don't know if this statement was released. I actually think it was the same day that he releases this like enough is enough. Because there's a fourth lawsuit against Diddy. Jane Doe. This happened in, allegedly, in 2003. The woman says at the time she was 17 and she was in the 11th grade. 14-page lawsuit. I always try to find the lawsuits when I can. Like, I read a bunch of recaps about the lawsuit on every major platform. But the actual lawsuit contains details that I'm like, how they leave that out? Like, if I was writing it, I'm just, and I'm saying this as a journalist, like, if I was writing it, there are certain things that I would have left in. So the new lawsuit, let me just check the date on this when it was filed. So, yeah, the same day that Diddy released the statement that I just read. This is page two of the lawsuit. Jane Doe says that she was sex trafficked and gang raped by Diddy, Mr. Combs, and Mr. Pierre. That would be Harv Pierre. We talked about him on a previous episode. There's also a lawsuit filed against him. I think it's also for assault by his former assistant. But these are the details. And just a trigger warning, we're talking about sexual assault and we're talking about it happening to a child these details are horrific. The woman alleges, quote, when she was just a teenager, she met Harve Pierre and a third assailant in a lounge in Detroit. She said Harve told her that he was best friends with Diddy, Puffy at the time, and even called Puffy in front of her. Puffy convinced this girl the lawsuit notes, quote, who was half his age at the time to accompany Harve and this third assailant on a private jet to Diddy's studio in New York City. I was like, I don't mean to be crass when I say this, but they got to fly in. I'm actually, I'm not going to say it that way because we're talking about a 17 year old. You got to fly in a girl from Detroit to New York. They ain't got no women left in New York. You got to fly them in. Just a random that you just met at the club? The woman says, and again, we're talking about a 17-year-old. Before they left for the private jet, Harv smoked crack cocaine in a bathroom at the lounge in which he also sexually assaulted this girl by forcing her to give him oral sex. Now, we're still on page two. It includes a note about the third assailant. Um... (laughs) The note literally says the third assailant is a pseudonym as if we didn't, you know, we thought the third assailant was like somebody's real name. Okay. And they said when the name of the third assailant is revealed during discovery, plaintiff will seek to amend the complaint to replace the pseudonym. Who is this third assailant? 
And why didn't they want to put, is it the girl doesn't know the name and they're waiting for, they're waiting for discovery to figure out who the third person was? Lawyers, help me out here. How does that happen? Because I would imagine that Diddy and Harv, actually, they can. Stay with me. I was going to say that I imagine Diddy and Harv, like, I would deny this ever happened and possibly even knowing the young woman. However, she had pictures at the studio and of her sitting on Diddy's lap. So you can't say you didn't know her and you can't say she wasn't there. And you also can't say she wasn't 17 at the time. Whew. So maybe she doesn't know the third assailant's name. Because they have to acknowledge that they know the girl because there are pictures. At least pictures with Diddy. Maybe Harv could deny. And he's smoking crack cocaine? Nigga. Okay, okay, okay. Allegedly, allegedly, allegedly. We're just on page three. It says Harv and the third assailant and another gentleman... Who's the, who's the other gentleman? Now we're up to four people. Escorted the high schooler to a private jet, which then flew them to New Jersey. There were SUVs waiting, and the four of them were driven to Daddy's House Recording Studio, a studio famously owned and operated by Mr. Combs and Bad Boy. While at the studio, Mr. Combs and his associates, including Harv, plied the girl, the 17-year-old, with drugs and alcohol. The lawsuit says as the night wore on, the 17-year-old became more and more inebriated, eventually to the point that she could not possibly have consented to having sex with anyone, much less someone twice her age. This is hard to read. It says, while at the studio, the 17-year-old was gang raped by Mr. Combs, the third assailant, and Mr. Pierre Harve, in that order. She alleges that while Diddy was raping her, he complained that he could not get off unless she pinched his nipples as hard as she could. She says Mr. Combs then watched as the third assailant, who the 17-year-old had not even realized had begun to have sex with her, raped her as she told him to stop. After the third assailant was finished, Mr. Pierre, that's Harv, took his turn at raping the 17-year-old and then violently forced her to give him oral sex during which she was choking and struggling to breathe. When he finished, he left the girl in the bathroom alone. She says she fell into the fetal position and lay on the floor. Her vagina was in pain. We're still on page three. Finally, after a period of time, she regained her bearings. However, she could barely stand up following the gang rape and had to be helped to walk out of the building and back into a car. She was taken back to an airport and flown back to Michigan. However, she has very limited recollection of her transport home and only remembers being in her car sometime in the early morning. Page four. This is where the pictures are. They blurred out the young woman's face. But there's clearly a picture of her sitting on Diddy's lap. And then pictures from inside the recording studio where there's a large P and a large D. P Diddy or Puff Daddy, one of those. The lawsuit continues. Miss Doe has lived with her memories of this fateful night for 20 years, during which time she has suffered extreme emotional distress that has impacted nearly every aspect of her life and personal relationships.
Given the brave women who have come forward against Ms. Combs and Mr. Pierre in recent weeks, Ms. Doe is doing the same. All right, we're on page five. We're establishing jurisdiction and venue. We're establishing the parties that are being sued. Oh, here's interesting. Page six, factual allegations. The young woman was 17 when this happened. At the time, Mr. Combs was 34, twice the age of the young woman. Here's an interesting point. Point 21. It says, at the time, 2003, Mr. Combs had many connections to Michigan, including, among others, to the Black Mafia family, a drug trafficking and money laundering organization that is rumored to have seeded Bad Boy. Huh? Where are my lawyers? Can my lawyers weigh in on this one? I only took the LSAT. I never made it to law school. What exactly is happening here? This mention of BMF and drug trafficking and money laundering and seeding bad boy. Are they alley-ooping Diddy for a RICO charge? Are my instincts right here? Where are my lawyers? Please weigh in. Come talk to me in my DMs and tell me why this, this detail was mentioned. I'm on page seven now. I'm going through more facts of the case. 27, they mentioned hard with smoking crack cocaine from, quote, what appeared to be an aluminum can. I don't even know how crack is smoked. Two times in my life, I've seen crack smoked. I mean, like, by people not acting. One was Marion Barry, and that was grainy video. I'm from D.C. They played that video on a loop for, like, two weeks straight. Like, on the news. That's, like, all anybody would talk about. And then, I want to say, what's this year, 2023? 2021 or 2022, I was walking down the street with my friend and his 13-year-old son, and this man pulled out a pipe, and I didn't know what the smell was. And I was like, what the fuck is that? And my friend, the child's father, was like, oh, that's crack. What? I was over 40. That's not the point. Point 28, after he finished smoking crack, Harv suddenly took out his penis, demanded that Miss Doe, quote, suck his dick, and forced Miss Doe's head down to perform oral sex on him. 29, after sexually assaulting Miss Doe, Mr. Pierre directed her to accompany him, the third assailant, and the third member of their group to an airport in Pontiac, Michigan, where Signature, a fixed base operator, they name it names, had prepared a private jet to take the four of them to New York City. They can pull the manifest on that, yeah, to talk about who was on the plane. I know it's private, but you still got to know who's flying. So they flew to Jersey, then they got to New York. She says she was escorted into the building. She distinctly remembers seeing a sign for the company Technicolor. So I guess that's establishing, like, yes, she was in the building. She said at the time she arrived, a female recording artist was using the studio as Mr. Combs and her parents watched on. Who was that young where her parents would be present? Who was on the label then? Point 35, while still at the studio section of Daddy's house, Mr. Combs asked Miss Doe to sit on his lap to take a picture. Nigga, you know you're doing illegal shit. Even if you don't know the girl's 17, you know you about to rape her, allegedly. Why would you take pictures of this shit? Point 37, while the evening became a blur, Miss Doe does recall Mr. Combs, Mr. Pierre, and the third assailant hitting on her incessantly, stroking her body, asking to see her ass, and telling her how hot and sexy she was. And then now there's more pictures from inside the studio. She kept these pictures all these years. Huh. Oh, God. I'm on point 40. So point 39 was like she's completely wasted and she could not possibly consent. 
Point 40. Mr. Combs directed Miss Doe to accompany him to the bathroom at the studio. He removed her skirt and underwear and penetrated her from behind while she hung over the sink. 41. She did not consent to having sex with Mr. Combs, but he continued thrusting. At some point, he turned Miss Doe around to face him. He told her that he could not. We talked about that, the orgasm thing. He then turned her back around and continued to rape her. She says at this point, she was coming in and out of consciousness because of the drugs and alcohol that she'd been given by the defendants. Her next memory was looking up into the mirror above the sink to find that the third assailant had replaced Mr. Combs and was raping her from behind. Mr. Combs was watching the third assailant sexually assault Miss Doe from a chair outside of the bathroom. She said she mustered the energy to tell the third assailant to stop and that she did not want to have sex with him. He did not stop and continued to rape her. When he finished, it's point 44, he was replaced by Mr. Pierre, who began having non-consensual vaginal sex with Miss Doe before violently forcing her to give him oral sex. She remembers that Mr. Pierre was sweaty and that she had difficulty breathing. It's 47. It says Miss Doe suffered significant emotional distress and feelings of shame that have plagued her life and personal relationships for 20 years. This is point 49. Most triggering for Miss Doe was reading about Miss Ventura's allegations of sex trafficking and being forced to have sex with other men against her will. Miss Doe obviously understands that she too had been sex trafficked because he brought her from Detroit to New York and multiple people had sex with her. Yeah. And that Mr. Combs' behavior in forcing women into non-consensual sex was not an isolated incident or unique only to Miss Ventura. Wow. This is a civil suit. I don't know if we mentioned this before. Two things I want to mention, and I, I think I've said this before. There is a, I don't know what the right term is. You don't need as much evidence for a civil suit as you do for a criminal suit. I, I think the example that I gave before was like how OJ was found not guilty criminally, but he was found liable civilly. But it's easier to get quote unquote justice via a civil suit than it is for a criminal suit. Also, in discussions about this fourth lawsuit, I've seen multiple people talk about, well, if this girl, you know, she meets this guy at a club. He says he's friends with Diddy. He smokes crack in front of her and then forces her to have oral sex. Like, why does she get on the plane with him? And when she gets to the studio and she's got on a real cute outfit. I mean, she was at a club. So she has on like a short, I want to say it's a short denim skirt. And it's this sleeveless D&G t-shirt. And she's a shapely girl. Girl being the operative word here. And I've seen people be like, well, you know, what did she think was going to happen when she got on that plane? If she wasn't trying to fuck. Then why was she sitting on his lap? Like she has to take some accountability. And then people, men and women, start telling these stories about how they remember they were in high school. There were all these young girls, 16 and 17, and they didn't date high school boys. They dated men who were 23, 25, 27, 30, whatever, because those men had money, had cars. And so people are like, yo, like these fast ass girls and their parents, because like, how are you a 17 year old girl? You're one at this club and you get on a plane from Detroit and fly to New York. Like, where was your mother? Like, where were your parents? Like, why is no one accountable for you? People keep saying like these parents have to take some accountability, which to a degree I agree with somewhat. 
I recall being a 17 year old and though I didn't do shit like this, I did tons of shit that my parents to this day don't know about. It's the nature of being a teenager. Some people get into more trouble than others. But the idea of blaming 17 year old girls, girls, minors for the actions of grown ass men, like in the case of Diddy, we're talking about a 17 year old and a man who was 34 or 35. If he went to school with Harv, they're about the same age. Harv was at least 30 when what this woman is alleging occurred. The onus is not on the teenage girl to make the best decisions. Where is the accountability for the grown ass men? You, you can actually say no to sex to people who are of age, but especially people who are underage. Like there is no scenario in that I'm going to be caught up with a teenage boy. And you could be like, well, she probably didn't tell them how old she was and she probably looked older than she was. You know the difference in conversation between somebody in high school and even somebody in college. Even the most stacked, sexy dressing, all the freedom in the world, no accountability. Parents ain't looking for her. You can look at a 17-year-old in the face and know they're 17. You know, you know what a teenager looks like. You know when somebody looks young. As grown as I'd like to think I looked when I was 17, when I was trying to sneak into clubs in D.C., I went to college at 17. I was on campus. I had to borrow IDs to go to the club. I thought I looked grown at the time. You couldn't tell me I didn't look the same as any 21-year-old. I look back at those pictures, I look like a baby. Because I was. I don't understand how people put the onus of, well, why was she dressed like that? She's 17. Why was he trying to fuck her? Well, why was she there? She's 17. Why was he trying to fuck her? Where is the accountability for these grown ass men? You could put me in a room with a 17 year old, butt naked. I don't care how fine he is. I don't care what football team he plays for, how many abs he got, how high his ass is. It's 17. I don't want it. Ask him, why does she sit on his lap or why does she fly there? Why does she do this? Why does she do that? Because she's a dumbass 17 year old dealing with grown ass men in their 30s who should have fucking known better. And why are they flying in ass from Detroit anyway? Again, I repeat, there was no ass in New York City. And I'm not saying go rape a 17-year-old in New York City. I'm just saying, goddamn, you can't find somebody who consensually wants to fuck you? Or if you know the power thing, you've got like a rape kink or whatever, blah, blah, blah. There are people who get paid a whole bunch of money to role play this stuff. Like, hire one. If for nothing else, to keep your ass out of jail and from losing all your assets. Because Diddy, I don't know how he works again after this. We haven't even gotten to the bombshell story of this week. This is not the bombshell. The bombshell is this story in Rolling Stone from Cassie's best friend. Cassie can't talk because she set up with Diddy. Cassie's best friend is a woman by the name of Tiffany. Tiffany Red. She is a Grammy winning songwriter. So people be like, oh, she's chasing clout. She got a Grammy. She don't need clout. Also, she hasn't filed a lawsuit. So she's not seeking money. She wrote this very long op-ed. Is it op-ed? Is that the right word for it? Expose might be better. Open letter is actually what Rolling Stone calls it. The headline for the story is Sean Combs traumatized me. Sorry, I tried to pull this up on my computer. It won't let me read it. On my phone, it comes through. So Rolling Stone gives a summary of the piece at first, all in ital. Oh, no, it is an open letter. It does say Dear Sean Combs. I missed that part the first time. She says, uh, I am stepping forward to recount my experience as a witness to events detailed in my friend Cassandra Ventura's now settled civil lawsuit against you.
I'm breaking my silence, freeing myself from haunting recollections, standing in solidarity with Cassie and standing up for myself. I fear for my safety as her suit alludes to me, although not by name. I hope that revealing my identity to the public will afford me some measure of protection. She says she and Cassie became friends in 2015 while she was co-writing songs for her album, the second album, that Diddy never released. She said she and Cassie remain close to this day, and she's one of the friends mentioned in her lawsuit, specifically from the night of her 29th birthday, as detailed in the section labeled, Mr. Combs Forces Miss Ventura into Sex Trafficking. I could read this whole thing. I'm not going to. I cried at the end. I'm about to do it again. I cried after I finished this piece. I was proud of this woman for like speaking up. She gains nothing from it. All she's going to get from most of the internet is ridicule and doubt and a bunch of bullshit. But I appreciate her coming forward. Because I think she's the only person so far that's spoken up and is not looking for some kind of check. Says Diddy's bodyguard, the one that's named in the lawsuit, released a video that I saw recently. And he keeps saying, like, he'll speak when the time is right, when the time is right, when the time is right. It's the strong undercurrent of when the right person cuts the right check, then he'll have something to say. But it's like everyone who's spoken out, mostly in the form of lawsuits, they're seeking money. And so for some people, it discredits the story. As far as I can tell, this woman isn't asking Diddy for shit. She says, the weight is heavy as I gather my thoughts to articulate these distressing memories. Physical reactions, the surge of heat on my face, sweaty palms, racing heart, and the onset of a panic attack serve as stark reminders of the toll it's taking. I am traumatized by you. The burden of vocalizing the experiences should never have been mine or anyone else's. She said she first met Diddy at Cassie's 29th birthday party. She says he surprised her. He popped out singing happy birthday. She says there were many friends, quote, a few famous faces. She doesn't name who. Those are all people who probably would have been subpoenaed if Cassie's lawsuit had gone forward. And she said there were cameras recording as we sang. The cameras recording? Where are my internet sleuths at? Are there videos from Cassie's 29th birthday party? Can we see who all was in the room? This is the same party where somebody got held over the balcony like Big Red style. Who was that person? Folks were saying it was Wale, and Wale was like, it wasn't me. Hmm. She says, uh, it's Cassie's birthday. She wanted to leave the first venue and go to a spot called Blind Dragon on Sunset Boulevard. Very specific. She recalls that Diddy was trying to discourage Cassie from leaving, but she went anyway. It says Diddy followed her. He came to where they were and he pulled Cassie out of the private karaoke room. She says, I followed to see if she was okay because something was off. When I walked out of the room, you had her backed into a corner in the hallway outside of the door and your security surrounded you two as you cursed her out with your hands in her face. She and I briefly made eye contact. I felt helpless. She looked afraid and kept looking down at the floor. I didn't know what to do. I was scared. She continues. Karaoke was cut short because you wanted her to leave with you. Cassie eventually goes with Diddy and the girl goes back to Cassie's house. That's where she was staying. She says, a few hours later, I was woken up by you screaming, emotional singing bitch, where are you? 
She says, I was mortified, humiliated, and scared when I realized you were talking to me. You were visibly intoxicated, and so was Cassie. She appeared sedated and very withdrawn. It was the first time I saw her this way. You started screaming at us. Tell your girl she wants some birthday dick. I flew all the way from Miami. She gonna get this birthday dick. You were visibly angry that she didn't want that from you. I was terrified. I said she doesn't have to have sex with you if she doesn't want to. You just kept screaming. She gonna get this dick. All I kept thinking about was how before you came to get her and she was sober, she kept telling us that she didn't want to go with you. She says Diddy and Cassie left Cassie's place, quote, in chaos on a golf cart and drove off into the night. We watched you from her balcony driving toward your house. I thought you were going to get pulled over and go to jail or crash from being so high. It was like a real life scary movie. She later told me that you made her have a freak off. And the reason you called me an emotional singing bitch was because you were listening to new songs we were writing for her album. She says, it makes me think it must have been songs Cassie hadn't recorded yet that were still demos. I can't begin to explain how it makes me feel thinking about my voice playing in the background of that nightmare. Throughout my time knowing Cassie, I've seen many concerning instances. There were occasions when I heard you yelling at her and making threats. Observed her so high, I was afraid of her overdosing at a party you threw for her in Malibu and witnessed both of you getting IVs after a different night of partying. Additionally, when I was part of her management team in 2019, a year after she was able to leave you, I saw you try to silence her by attempting to tie a non-disparagement clause to her record deal termination agreement, which felt unjust. I'm skipping forward a little bit. She says, I feel compelled to show up for Cassie and myself and confirm that everything she described in her complaint about what happened is consistent with what I experienced. She says, I continue to work through the PTSD, paranoia, and anxiety from these events. Your abuse of power has inflicted ongoing harm on countless individuals, including myself, my friends, and my peers. You are a literal pillar in Black music. So many of us looked up to you. This moment hurts for us too, but no one deserves to endure all this, Puff. It's not right. You're hurting the very Black and brown people you say you love and support. It pains me to write this letter to you as a Black woman, but when will this cycle of abuse stop? This is the part that just hit me. I don't know if she wrote this herself or she had somebody edit it. This last paragraph, she says, the power imbalance makes it nearly impossible to fight back and terrifying to speak up. But despite that, here I am standing beside my friend. There are moments in life when some of us have to face the hard choice of speaking truth to power or not. This is one of those moments. <sighs> That's a lot. And I'm glad she co-signed Cassie. I don't think there are many people that didn't believe Cassie's allegations. I think it's very notable. And I might have mentioned this on a previous podcast. I say all kinds of stuff and then edit it out before it goes to publication. It's not lost on me that there have been what, four lawsuits directly against Diddy. 
five, if you count the lawsuit against Har Pierre, which was he was the president of Bad Boy, no one has tried to defend him. His lawyer, who's being paid to defend him, is the only person who's denied any of these allegations. Everybody else is sitting somewhere silently and eating their food. Mary ain't said shit. Kim ain't said shit. Jay-Z ain't said shit. All these people who Diddy be up in the pictures with posting on his Instagram, Naomi Campbell, ain't said shit. Nobody has been like, he would never do that. That's not the caliber of man that I know him to be. That's not in his character. He's not capable of. No one has said shit. No one. No one in his friend circle has come to his defense. Not even his own damn mama, which I actually respect. But not even his own damn mama be like, my son would never. My son is not capable of. I raised a good boy. Like, even his mama ain't defending him. Everybody thought he did the shit. He released that statement denying everything the other day. People were like, sir, go sit down somewhere. We know you did that shit, allegedly. That's, yeah. He's done. And there's more to come, I'm sure. And he deserves the shit, I think. I think he did it. Can I say that? Where's my lawyer? Can I say that? It's an opinion on a public figure. Yeah, I can say that. I don't feel the least bit bad for him either. I do feel bad for the kids, though. Everybody except the baby is old enough to read. Do you see the shit people are saying about your father? Four different women with the same story. And now Cassie's best friend co-signing it. All right. That's the episode for this week. We're not doing Bob and Sheila for obvious reasons. It's too much drama. It's too much. It's a mess. All right. We'll be back Tuesday. I should be back in Ghana. Talk soon. Bye. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.